Welcome to Season 2 of History, Politics, and Beer, the podcast that examines contemporary issues through the lens of history. Now, from the home office in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we invite you to sit back with an ice-cold one and enjoy the pontifications of your hosts, Matt Shockey and Jeff Hudson. All right, welcome back, boys and girls, to History, Politics, and Beer. My name is Matt Shockey, and across from me is the great Jeff Hudson. Sorry it's been so long since our last podcast. Kind of went on a little bit of a miniature break there. But we have a couple podcasts planned here. We're going to kind of sift through some political parties, uh, Republicans, Democrats. We're going to take a look at some origins. We're going to take a look at some philosophies. Uh, and then we're going to throw some other uh, smaller parties in there, too. So we got a, a series of these things planned. And Jeff, before we talk about the beer, I think we should talk about our upcoming event that we have. It looks like it's on March 21st at TELUS 360. We are going to present a live version of our podcast, which is going to be about the faces of immigration in Lancaster County. Yeah, and it, it's we're going to have people – if you don't know, Lancaster County is sort of a hub for immigrants. Yeah. Uh, we have a very good record. It has with, been for a long time. Right, and people don't know that. Uh, so we're, we're hosting a – we're going to try to record it. Doubt we'll be able to get a quality recording out of it. But we want to invite everyone to come out to Telus 360 on March 21st. Right. Uh, we, I will be tweeting out and also putting on Facebook a specific time. Uh, we're going to just learn some stories about immigrants in Lancaster. Right. Should be a good time. Should be a good time. All right. So uh, we have a porter today, Jeff. What are we drinking? Well, we're drinking a porter. And, uh, you know, people familiar with beer know that's one of the darker beers. And we don't bring that. Too many of those in no, here. No, we had some IPA, a lot of IPAs, but this might be the first por- – no, it was the – We had a George Washington porter with when we did Yards, Beers of the Revolution. Right. And then we had the Milk Stout. That's what I was saying, the Milk Stout which, was a which porter. Which you enjoy quite yeah. a bit. And Stouts and Porter are very uh, similar in the fact that they use the brown malt, the, the darker malt. Um, and the term porter, they think, comes from the fact – that uh, day laborers like the porters were people to haul stuff. Okay, so they stop in at the inn and, and uh, the ale house and and have themselves a strong tasting dark beer. So this is from Deschutes, which is a great brewery out of Oregon. And go ahead, here let we me go. Know. Let me know All what right. You think. Oh, that's good. Right, yeah, yeah. You told me coming in like you're gonna <laughs> like that beer. That is bam. Black if, if, Butte if, if, Porter, A, B, or C? Well, that's an A. Beer. Yeah, it's an A. That's an A. a beer. That's an A. It's 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 a it really not only can Porter be a good beer. This is a great version of it. Oh the, yeah, the Deschutes Brewery Black Butte Porter is is has, just hard to beat. I'm not really good at describing tastes and flavors, but as a multiple flavor in your mouth, yeah. it re- leaves a really nice aftertaste strong, back. A strong malt. Yes. But smooth. There's no bitterness yeah. in that. Oh, that's a nice beer it's right there. It's a delicious there. beer. Yeah. A plus. Go get yourself some Deschutes Black Butte Porter. Uh, it's also a beautiful box too. I mean, I don't know if that means anything, but there is. Yeah. All right. So let's get down to brass tacks here. Um, Jeff and I were talking about how we were going to break up these political parties and what's what we're going to do first. And Jeff, being the genius that he is, decided that we should simply go uh, in as a timeline fashion, go to earliest. And the earliest of the major parties 
is a Democratic Party right. uh, formed in, during the age of Jackson. Um, Jackson is considered the first Democrat president, um, sort of getting his lineage from Thomas Jefferson, um, the idea that this is a party of the people for the common man. We get the jackass from Jackson. Right. Um, if you want to know where the animal comes from with the donkey for the Democratic Party, uh, it was put forth by Jackson's enemies uh, to call him a jackass, Jackson jackass. And just like um, like Hillary Clinton called Trump people deplorables, people take that moniker on as a symbol of pride. And that's what the Democrats did. They took that jackass on. Yeah, you're right. We are jackasses. We're strong and we we don't. We don't put up with stuff, and, and, and we stick. And we're, we're stubborn. Jackasses in in that period in American history were very useful animals, right? Too. So it was kind of turned around. Um, the modern Democratic Party, though, really gets its start in the late. 1800s with the populists. And as industrialization hits, it becomes clear that government is going to have to be involved in regulating business. And the populists were farmers and they originally wanted regulation of the banks. They wanted regulation of uh, railroads, the telegraphs. Um, and that is the first time we can really see a push to get government involved in business. Um, we pick up next with the progressives. The progressives were both Republicans and Democrats, early 20th century. And this, again, was about curbing big business, curbing the influence of corporations and government finding its place between people and capitalism, sort of being a filter, sort of being a regulatory uh, agency that it can work and we can tame capitalism. Uh, the true heart of the Democratic Party, though, is going to be beating – in the 1930s uh, with the election of Franklin Roosevelt. And most modern democratic ideas, democratic philosophies are going to be traced to the New Deal. Right. And, you know, FDR uh, got elected in 1932. His election was a reaction uh, to Hoover's inaction on and unsuccessful dealings with the Great Depression. And FDR promised action in the form and which became in the form of the New Deal, massive government intervention in the economy. And really for the first time in American life, you have the idea that government is a can be a protector of American prosperity. Right. Uh, things had gotten so bad. I'm going to give you a whole litany of the terrors of the Great Depression, but a quarter of the people were out of work. And it didn't seem like capitalism, like prices would fall. Capitalism far was failing. Capitalism was failing. And people, and, and a lot of people don't understand too. There were people dying of hunger. Uh, there were riots in American cities, labor riots. It was a time of a lot of unrest. It's the only time in American history where more people are leaving America than coming to America. A hundred thousand people. Go to Russia. Yeah. Hundred thousand Americans pick up and go to Russia. You have to remember that um, the Russians were predicting this. The communists were predicting the fall of capitalism. And to many people, the Great Depression—that's what it looked like. That capitalism was failing. And what we learn is that capitalism needs propped up. It needs regulated. It, it, it needs a, it, it needs intervention in some way. And that's right. I interrupted you there, but right. that's what Franklin Roosevelt's doing, right? Sure. And, uh, you know, the New Deal had various programs to 
to uh, immediately relieve people's suffering, get the banks back in order. A lot of the New Deal wasn't just government programs. It was to get capitalism working again. People had to trust the banks again in order to deposit their money, in order that banks might make private loans and loans to businesses and individuals and farmers and so forth. So um, what the New Deal showed, and, and, and historians, I mean, the New Deal didn't get us out of the Great Depression. But what it did is give people some hope. Uh, it did ameliorate some of the really bad effects that provided housing and jobs and many programs like the Civilian Conservation Corps. And at a time when places like Germany were turning to totalitarian government to deal with the Depression, it showed that a a democracy could deal with something as horrendous as, as, as an economic catastrophe. It also puts in a safety net to the point where we don't have another depression, but we've never, we haven't had another depression. Right. You know, so if you, look at you, if you look at American history, they used to call them panics. We, used, we had a panic or a recession about every 20 years. Um, so one happens in the 1930s. You'd expect one to happen in the 1950s. It doesn't. Economic boom time through the 50s, the 60s. Uh, Really, the Great Recession of a few years ago in – well, we could talk about stagflation in the 1970s, but an unprecedented run without really having a severe economic downturn like we did in the 1930s. And we can thank uh, the New Deal for that. We can thank – yes, the SEC, which regulates the stock market, uh, you know, Social Security, which has has helped older people maintain their – Living standard, and they also put money into the economy, and that moder- you know moderates the bad effects of economic downturns. But yeah, and and you know what you had basically is is a tremendous success uh, uh, in the middle part of the 20th century, and I'm, we're not going to say that's all due to the Democrats or Democratic leadership, but you had tremendous success. It provided stability. It, it provided stability. FDR goes on, they lay plans, very successful plans to win World War II. In a matter of four years, you know, Italy, Germany, and Japan are all defeated. Uh, the basis is laid to the Marshall Plan and other things for a stable recovery. They're all democracies now. I mean, it, it, it's almost, you couldn't imagine a higher level of success. Uh, the GI Bill is passed. These workers come back instead of being abandoned like many generations of veterans were. Uh, you could get trained, go to school. They're fed back into a booming economy. Uh, for the first time, you really have an American, a big American middle class. Home ownership rates go from one-third of Americans to two-thirds of Americans will, will own their and own home. A lot of people are going to give uh, credit to the Democratic Party, and it's going to be a reason why the Democrats dominate well, they just for, dom- for the 50s the, and 60s and 70s. Right, throughout the mid part of right. the 20th century. And even today, there are more registered Democrats than there are – I mean, it, it, it goes back to this period of success. And when we talk about political parties, it's important to talk about coalitions. A coalition is just basically the different groups that vote for you. And – the New Deal coalition might have been the most successful coalition ever in American politics. And, and what it included was industrial workers who were uh, appreciated things like the National Labor Relations right. Act, enabled them to unionize, the codification of an eight-hour work week in a lot right. of places, uh, women, minorities, 
intellectuals, older Americans, older Americans, and Southern whites. The, right. The, the South was called the Solid South. They didn't vote Republican ever since the Civil War. They weren't going to vote for the Party of Lincoln. They voted for the Democrat. And the South was really hit. It was a poorest region during the Great Depression. It was really hit terribly. And those programs that Roosevelt instituted really, really helped to keep Tennessee the Valley Authority. There you go. Building all those dams, right. providing electricity. Just one example. And also during the war, I think Roosevelt was was throwing a lot of government contracts to the southern regions and to the more depressed regions to help stimulate the economy in those regions as well. So you see a lot of military bases popping up in the south, probably for those reasons. Right. Right. Well, the land was I mean, it was right. cheaper to put it there, but also, yeah, it, 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 it did help economic development. So this Great New Deal coalition uh, continues and it continues really, I'd say, uh, on up through the election of Jimmy Carter. And Reagan might be the one uh, to really might have said to be uh, ended that. But it starts to break up over the issue of civil rights fairly early. In 1948, Harry Truman, who takes over after Roosevelt dies, uh, it becomes the first president to put forward a civil rights law. And then he does- This is overlooked. A lot of people don't know about, they always think Kennedy and they always think LBJ, but people forget about Harry Truman. Right. And, you know, uh, one of the things he did is- because he could do it all on his own without Congress, is issue an executive order as commander-in-chief, integrating the armed services. And you got to remember back then, you had the draft. You know, the, the idea of the military, this is in the right in the wake of World War II, people thought, well, everybody, all, all the young men go into the military. Right. And, and so when you say you're going to integrate them, that means that uh, you know, if, if you're a Southerner, a place where their segregation is practiced, that your kid who has gone to a different school, uh, lives in a different neighborhood, goes to a different job, no, they're going to go and yeah. live and work in the same place, take showers together, bunk together. And this was an idea that really turned off a lot of Southerners who were Democrats. And now you in uh, – 1948, you get the Dixiecrats, and I think right. five southern states end up voting for Strom Thurmond, uh, who's the head of the new states' rights, so-called party, uh, and it's on the basis that they're for segregation. I mean, they put that in their party platform, they're for segregation. So you start to see the cracks in the New Deal coalition. Well, and let's fast forward then to the 1960s, um, and Kennedy, and more importantly, LBJ where we really see the huge crack in the party uh, w with race relations, talking about African-Americans joining the Democratic Party. I think today over 90 percent of African-Americans vote uh, Democratic. Um, it, it's probably the single largest voting block, I think, for maybe for any party that votes almost that exclusively one way. Right. Right. You know, I can't it's, think of it's another. It's, it's the most reliable voting. Right. Page. I can't think of another voting block. And it's it's LBJ, uh, right? 1964, 1965, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act um, that is going to, to make the shift complete that the Democratic Party is the progressive wing, the liberal wing of the Democratic Party. I think that's really important to say because there was a progress, it was a conservative part of the Democratic Party that wanted nothing to do with this. Right. And there was. 
So it was the liberal wing of the Democratic Party who championed civil rights, and then you get the split. Um, and the Johnson wh- said when those uh, the Civil Rights Act was passed, I think there's a, a famous video of him uh, signing the Civil Rights Act, and, he, and Martin Luther King's there, and he gives him one of the pens that he has signed the act with. Well, you know, for a Southerner in, in 1964, this is a betrayal in some ways, you know, and Johnson's from Texas. And... Uh, supposedly, uh, there's an apocryphal comment that Johnson made it said, after he signed it, said, now yeah, we've lost the South for a generation. And that was not true. It was more than a generation. Well, yeah. And, you know, it took time. And But the truth is, after that, the Democrats only elected two presidents until Barack Obama in 2008. And they were both white Southerners. Uh, Jimmy Carter, who took his home state of Georgia and some mm-hmm. other Southern states, and Bill Clinton, who took Arkansas and some of the other. But other than that, it's been uh, slim pickings down in the South for uh, Democratic presidential candidates. It has been. And it's interesting that there has been that way because, as you pointed out, there are more registered Democrats than there are registered Republicans. Um, the latest Gallup poll tells us that 46% of Americans are either Democratic or lean Democratic, and it's been that way for quite some time. It was a huge success in the in the mid part of the 20th century. Right. It's still lingering. And we could break – and maybe in a future podcast, I would really like to take a look at Keynesian economic theory um, and look at what happened in the 1970s with stagflation and why – Keynesian economic theory crashes and a a conservative wave happens with Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. Uh, We get more supply-side economics and F.A. Hayek uh, and the Austrian school of economic thought. But that's a whole – like I said, that's going to be a whole other podcast. That's really detailed stuff. If you could – I mean this is a tough one. What what does the Democratic Party believe in? You know, it's almost like when they – I think of – they asked Gandhi uh, how many different kinds of Hinduism there are and Gandhi basically said, well, how many Hindus are there? You know, <laughs> uh, How many Hindus – that's how many versions of Hinduism there is. Right. And I kind of feel the same way almost with political parties. That, well, especially with the Democrats. Yes. I mean there's that famous Will Rogers yeah. quote. <laughs> you know, I, I, I belong to no, no organized political party. I am a Democrat. Pass me that bottle opener so I can join another one of these uh, These porters. That's good stuff. So if we had to sum up in a very generic way what Democrats, the core of the Democratic belief, how would you do that? It's a tough question. Well, it is a tough question. And and I would say that if you talk about their great era of success and and looking at that, which is the the mid – part of the 20th century, and then seeing a, th- a thread that would go back to Andrew Jackson, it would be standing for the common man. Uh, you know, uh, unionization provided a lot of things for workers in the post-war economy. They were able to get medical care that way, good medical care. You mm-hmm. know, they were able to get pensions, lifelong pensions, which were offered. And many times the part of that pension was health care too, wasn't it? Well, yeah, you could get health care the rest of your life from right. being a UAW worker. General Motors was the biggest corporation in the world. And I don't want to say that this was due just to government interference. This was due to the success of capitalism in the right. United States. But as as you had already mentioned, moderated and controlled somewhat by government. The government was helping to pick the winners and losers in the economy. And there were – I would say what Democrats 
stood for and still would claim to stand for is they they want to help the average person. They want more people to be winners. And yes. Kind of, and more people to have chances to succeed. And they believe in an activist government, a government that's going to have a positive impact on your life. You know, there's a great quote from Ronald Reagan that goes, government isn't part of the solution. It's it, it, gov- Government isn't the solution. Government's the problem. If you believe, fundamentally believe that, you're going to be a Republican. If you look at that and say that's ridiculous, government does a lot of great things and can do a lot of great things, you more tend to be a Democrat. Well, I think we got to look at the idea of positive freedom and negative freedom. Yes. And negative freedom is the idea that if, the go- if government stays out of your business, things will go the, the best and you'll have the best choices. You'll have the most freedom. Uh, to quote Thomas Jefferson, that government governs best, which governs least. Now, if you believe in the idea of positive freedom, you say, well, the government can actually add choices to people's lives. And if we, let, let's take the issue, which has been an issue in, in public uh, discussion for a while now, is health care. If we look at health care, if, if I can't get health care for myself – or my family, if I if I at that at a particular moment don't have enough money to provide that for my family, what a Democrat would say, well, you've you've lost some freedom. You 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 don't have the freedom to be healthy and well taken care of. What you need is possibly government interference to make that a possibility to give you that good choice, which actually makes you more free. You're not. Right. So that's the idea uh, of positive freedom. And I, I think when we talk about Republicans and Democrats, and I, I think it's a good idea to concentrate on the positive aspects of them. We can, we'll come around and criticize both parties later. So, so when we're presenting this, I'm, I, I sort of, I don't know how to present it except from the view of a Democrat. And that's, right. that's what a Democrat would say. And we do Republicans. We're going to do it from the view of a Republican Party, right? right? Absolutely. So we're not here to trash either party. We're no. here to give a positive view, as if you were part of that party. Right. What 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 are the ideals? Yeah, and, what, you said, what do they believe? And I, I think, I think on that question would really show what they believe. This idea that government, uh, if government can provide better schools or provide some aid to you so you can get higher education like the GI Bill did, right. which was passed by the Democrats and Roosevelt. Then they now you got more choices. Now you come back from the war and you know maybe you can be an engineer. A lot of that money went to vocational training. Maybe you'll be a plumber. Maybe you'll be a baseball umpire, which they actually had courses right. for. But now you'll have what they would say is that you have more choices. You actually have – government has facilitated your freedom. Right. Government is a positive in your life. Uh, government is an is activist and government can do lots of good things. Um, and that – so if you're a Democrat, that you that is your core to your belief. Now, there's lots of issues that Democrats – rally around. We can talk about pro-choice. We can talk about the environment. We can talk about gay rights. But all those in themselves don't make you a Democrat, right? Being a Democrat really is about the idea of an activist government, which then brings us – you were going to talk a little bit about uh, the three-tiered system of a political party, You know, the local level, the state level, and the federal level because as the 
Gandhi quote says that however many people there are, that's how many different versions of something there are. There's lots of people out there that don't care about the activist government. I only care about the environment. And because I only care about the environment, I'm a Democrat. To me, that doesn't make any sense because that's not the core of the party. But who am I to tell someone else they're not a Democrat just because they tend to view the party differently? Somebody else is going to – the LBGT rights might be important or climate change might be the reason they vote Democratic and they could care less about the more philosophical approach to the Democratic Party. Right. And, and it, to, to understand, it's kind of have to agree on a definition of what a political party is. Right. And I think everybody has sort of an informal understanding that it is a group of people that share somewhat similar beliefs and they want to affect the political system to advance their views. Um, but you could be a member of a, a trade association or a special interest group or an environmental group and that would be a true of you. So what separates the parties from these other politically active organizations and that's that they want to get people elected. Right. They want to get people elected. So you want to recruit and put people in office. And if you don't do that, you're, you're not a successful political party. So what happens is uh, traditionally is that because most – the majority of Americans are moderate, parties tend to be moderate in their beliefs in order – to get voters to win a national election, you know, or in the case of the Senate, a statewide election. Um, but it is it, – I think you bring up a really good point. The Democrats perhaps more than the Republicans have become kind of a smorgasbord. Right. It's like, well, you know, I'll join this because I think they've – as we've already mentioned, they've advanced the cause – of of civil rights more than the other party, which they have in in modern times. Um, so maybe that's why I do that. But that doesn't mean I care about global warming, right? But you know, maybe I maybe I want more land and national monuments, and I do care about global warming. Well, maybe that's why. And and I think the problem the modern Democratic Party has, and you can see it with the candidates now, is deciding what it is. Now, we can go back to your uh, characterization of the Democratic Party as believing in an activist government. I still think that's true. They believe government has a role. And we can go back to my look at positive freedom. They think government should provide Right. Those more. two things go hand in hand. So, yeah. Should provide – can provide more choices. But what those choices will be and where the effort, the political effort, capital is what they call political capital, should be spent, I don't think Democrats – Agree on. I mean, is for some people, uh, you know, the rights of transgendered uh, citizens who are ha, ha, that have been denied. That's extremely important. Now, and, and and not to you know, the Democratic Party of the 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s or even maybe possibly even the 70s. That's not going to be an extremely important issue to the base of the party. But I'd say it has become an important issue. So how do you do that? How do you bring all these different strands together? Now, Obama was able to create his own coalition. And it looked to me from the outside like maybe this was a new coalition. Yeah. He was the first guy who wasn't a Southern white to get elected after Johnson and the Civil Rights Act. And it included minorities and women. and. Uh, and young people, 
It also included a fair amount of what they used to call Reagan Democrats, the the working class white people, who who have now kind of, now kind of realized that capitalism wasn't you know jobs have been moving away from their their cities and so forth, and maybe the Republican philosophy of free trade wasn't working, and and maybe government should come and and do a little more in their community. So you know he won the industrial Midwest. Real easily uh, to in two thousand and eight and two thousand. I mean, Obama. It, it wasn't hard for him to win well, Pennsylvania, the, Wisconsin, and Michigan. I think the coalition would have stuck if it wasn't for Hillary Clinton. Um, Hillary Clinton was such a bad choice as a candidate. I'm not saying she was going to be a bad president, but as a candidate, she wasn't. That that coalition shattered. You'd have to think that if Joe Biden would have won, I mean, would have ran, that coalition would have stuck. Uh, that maybe those people would have more chance of being stuck. Right. There was a backlash against Obama, and part of that backlash was racist. My problem uh, on authors who have said, "Well, that's the whole reason why Hillary lost," is the fact that. Hillary wasn't Barack Obama. And Barack Obama, in the end, leaves office with an approval rating in the high 50%, which Mm -hmm. is a lot in a polarized. In some polls, it was even 60%. And I believe if you didn't have the 22nd Amendment, I I don't think he would have had a problem getting reelected against Trump. I really don't. No, it would have been a a, a beating. Trump would have taken a beating against Obama. And and I just – so there was – there was there was racism, there was sexism involved in that, and I think you can make the argument that if you had well you're arguing that maybe a Biden won, but I think that's too simplistic too okay I think you're right that Biden would also have appealed to those voters, eighty thousand of them divided in three states, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, who were basically working class white people who changed from being Obama voters to either staying home or becoming Trump voters, I think they would have gone and voted for Joe Biden. I won't say Hillary is the worst thing in the world. Not a good candidate. Not a good candidate in the industrial Midwest. And I think you got another thing that was going on that alien, that alienates people from the Democratic Party sometimes. Um, and, and that's these cultural issues. When Reagan won in 1980, people were tired of the people like my brother, who was a hippie <laughs> and had long hair and, you know, they, they didn't have jobs for a while no. and they dropped out and kind of had free love. And, you know, America has this conservative middle class and they were alienated Yeah, from get in that. a boat and start rowing like the rest of us. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I, 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 the Democratic Party, one of the benefits of the Democratic Party is that they have a big umbrella um, and they pull a lot of different people in. One of the troubles with the Democratic Party is they have a large umbrella and they, they pull, pull a lot, a lot of people, people in. Right. And then once you get – and we're seeing that now uh, that they – as you mentioned before, the Democratic Party has a really hard time defining itself because there are so many different groups who are who are clamoring for a seat and want their issue brought to the front. The Republicans don't tend not to have that problem because their coalition is smaller, more homogeneous, and they don't fight each other over issues because they tend to agree on a core group of issues. So the message is easier for them to get out. Um, 
in the next pod, I would like, I mean, we're coming up on about 31 minutes here. I don't, I would, we would like to, I would like to talk up some issues um, about the Democrats and how the Democrats are handling these issues. I don't know if we're going to have time in well, this can, pod to do it. Do you want to try hit, tackle well, a few? I think we got to look at the challenges. Let's just look at the challenges okay. in general ways rather than specific candidates. Okay. You know, you got Trump and he hangs around between 40 and 45% job approval rating. And normally that's not going to get you reelected, especially with the legal problems, you know, he's, he's run into. But, you know, Democrats have a, almost a genius for snatching uh, defeat from the jaws of, of, of victory. Right. And you also have this thing called the Electoral College, which gives the, uh, the smaller, more rural states a greater say uh, and who becomes the president. And as I look out on the field of candidates and how they're approaching things, and I look out on who is getting the publicity right now in the Democratic Party, I fear that, you know, as I fear for the Democrats in the sense that I don't know if they can get their act together and coalesce around a candidate uh, uh, and to, to beat Trump. As you say, their coalition is bigger. That's their big advantage. Look at the elections. The, the, the Republicans, since 1992, so we have, you know, was that, 20, 26 years now, 27 years, they've elected one president with a majority of popular vote, who won the popular vote. And that was George W. Bush the second time. His first time, and Donald, Donald Trump, was elected without winning the popular vote. Their coalition is smaller. And what, you know. But the Electoral College allows them, if it wasn't for the Electoral College. You might the, not have had a Republican president. No, the Republican Party would almost cease to exist or they would have had to change their tactic. Right, and they would the, yes. to get people elected. But they don't have to because Electoral College allows them to win elections without being the majority party. But as you point out, the Democratic Party is is struggling. Like um, Alexandria Cortez said that uh, capitalism is irredeemable. That's not going to win you an election. That might win you popularity in New York City, uh, where she's from. But that's Part, not – Parts of New York yeah, City. That's not going to – Maybe gonna, not Manhattan. That's think, not going to win you votes in Wisconsin. the Bronx. I that's mean. not going to win you votes in Wisconsin. That's not going to vo- win you votes outside Pittsburgh. Uh, capitalism is irredeemable. I mean now the Democratic Party, members of the party are even discussing slave reparations. That's not going to win you votes. To to, be, to favor reparations for slavery. Uh, that's well. Going the term like socialism comes right. up all the time. You know, uh, uh, Bernie Sanders, one of the candidates for the, the, the Democratic, Democratic socialist. Government. Yeah, he doesn't. He's not even a. You know, well, Cortez is a Democratic socialist too. Right, and you know, the deal with Americans. If if you think about these again, the hugely successful. Uh, uh, leadership of the Democrats in the, in the middle of the 20th century. They create Social Security. They create – Johnson creates Medicare. Without those programs, without the, the getting uh, employers contributing to people's retirement and without uh, uh, giving older people a way to buy health insurance because older people get sick more, you, you, can't, you can't really retire. I mean it creates this part of the American dream. And – I would defy any Republican to go up and say, you know what, I'm going to get rid of Social Security because it was a bad idea. I'm going to get rid of Medicare. Socialism. Yeah. Yeah. 
it is socialism. Both of those things are collectivist in their nature. Right. But Americans love them. So I think – but when people hear the term socialist, I don't think they think of Medicare and and Social Security right away. They think those as American programs that have worked. Right. And they also think that they pay into them, which I think a lot of people don't necessarily – You know, socialism has – again, you talk about as many meanings as people Yes, wanna, absolutely. Holy smokes. Uh, yeah. So – but uh, – I don't think it's wise. I, I think it might be wise to to say, well, you can have a buy-in. We're going to have now from 55 on, you can buy in to Medicare. People, oh, yeah, I know Medicare. Right. That sounds good. Maybe I'd want to buy in. Maybe I can retire early. Maybe I'm in a laboring job. And I got injured. and Now I can get medical care for me and my family. I think that's that's good. But you start saying, oh, capitalism is irredeemable. I mean, yep. ca- capitalism is the goose that laid the golden egg in the United States, and it is a golden in the egg. world, yeah, in the world. And so, I don't, I don't think you're going to get very far either, and I don't think you're going to get very far making dividing the people into more and more subgroups. You're absolutely right, and that, the Democratic Party is really good at that: is dividing us into subgroup of subgroup of subgroup. Um, to go back to that idea of socialism that you were bringing up, if you just look at universal health care and Obamacare, um, if you ask people, do they want universal health care? They want government-run health care. They'll say no. But do you want Medicare for all? Well, that's up to sixty percent approval, right. right? So it's just a, a phrasing difference. Or if, or if you can't afford medical care, yes, should the government help you? I mean, if you're and most people say, yeah, yeah, I want the, I want the guy, right. And that's the way you have to present these things. I, you know, lately uh, we've had a, a congressman, newly elected congressman from Minnesota, make some remarks that include anti-Semitic tropes. Yep. Like uh, the Jews have so much influence because of, quote, the Benjamins, unquote, yeah. money. I mean, that goes back. That's an ancient that's an ancient right. anti-Semitic trope. It goes back to the Middle Ages when, when Jews weren't, weren't allowed to own property. They would get into banking and other things and and people would owe them money and they would say, well, the Jews are money. I mean this is ancient. <clears throat> That's a dumb thing <coughs> Excuse me, to, for someone to say. It's dumb. And that's not going to win you votes. Jews are one of the most reliable – Democratic voting blocks. You don't want to alienate them. And you don't want, when you have a person that is attacking Mexicans and is attacking immigrants and has said terrible things about women, you don't want to be your party to say the bad things about Jewish people. Right. You want to be the inclusive party. And there's there's a part of the modern Democratic Party that's so reductionist that and that is driven so much by this, their own smaller agenda that it doesn't appeal to Americans who might want to unify for a larger purpose. Now, explain what you mean by reductionist. Well, just this: we're we're not fundamentally American citizens. Uh, I mean, I th- I think that's what Trump says. I think the under one of the underlying messages of Trumpism 
is that we've had a certain ethnic group here, okay. a certain racial group that's that's been in charge, and it's worked out. And so let's let's keep that. But I don't think that it's good to try to counter that with saying, well, what it, we're all victims of that group. Okay. And now we have to. I, I guess I mean the idea of of reducing people like who is to who is the most victimized group comes the victim olympics vi- yeah a victim olympic i don't think that's helpful and I, I for various reasons but it doesn't help people get elected because even though i believe that it's absolutely true that in the majority of cases it's an ad- advantage to be born a white person in the united states still there's a whole lot of white Americans who don't feel very privileged, and they're not very privileged. Right. You know, if you're a coal miner's son in West Virginia and the coal mine closed, you don't feel privileged. And also, if you're successful, you don't want people telling you that, oh, you really didn't do that anyway. Right. You know what I mean? You were born on third base. Well, that's an insult. You know, so it, and, and, and some people are, but then there's people like my uh, sister-in-law who, who came from a single-parent family and who moved down to Washington, D.C. and sold area and sold cookies so she could afford the rent and now has a company of a hundred more than 150 people and she runs the company and she's she's a woman she had no generational wealth there was no money that she had from her family to invest that so she had uh, uh, just a bachelor's education she did it by hard work and there is something diminished oh, well you had white privilege she didn't have the I understand white privilege is, is these people that are paying. We now know that they can pay to get into whatever freaking <laughs> yeah. college you want to. That's in the news with the. So I understand white privilege. I understand that it happens. But you're talking about this reductionist idea is dividing us, right? That it puts us in different camps, and then the different camps within the same camp end up yelling at each other. Um, and they're supposed to really be Bernie only- Sanders and Hillary Clinton last time, right? So hey, I, we're we're going to leave it there for this pod. Um, really tried to dig deep there. We're going to come back. We're going to tackle a little bit more of the Democrats. uh, And then we're going to tackle uh, the Republican Party. And then I would like to do a pot or two on third parties and talk about the Libertarians and some other third parties. And I think we could also maybe do a little review on why we are a two-party system. We did that before, but... Can always hit it again. Absolutely. So, hey, thanks for listening. Uh, we'll be tweeting out some information on Telus 360 and the faces of immigration in Lancaster. And until March next, 21st. Yeah, until next time, thanks for joining us. Yeah.